It's time for the Smart Money Questions Podcast with Matt Hausman. This is the show that provides you with a sound financial education and helps you avoid financial pitfalls. Make sure you are asking the right questions by listening to the Smart Money Questions Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome again. Matt Hausman, your host for the Smart Money Questions podcast. Hope everyone is doing great out there, wherever you are and whenever you are listening to this. Um, So just to go back over what I do when I jump on the podcast mic is I go over different things that have happened uh, in our office or questions I have received uh, over the internet from other listeners and try and go over those different scenarios and things to consider before making certain decisions. And today we've got four really good questions, a couple that have actually happened here in the office and a couple that have come through the internet. Uh, So let's actually jump right into those because I don't want this to take too long. So before I do, let's make sure we deal with the disclaimer. Please don't take any of the information or ideas or suggestions that I offer in today's show as direct advice for you. Please use it as information and education that you then can discuss with your advisor. Now, if you don't have an advisor or you would like for us to be your advisor, I'm more than happy to have that conversation with you. And it's real simple. All you have to do is go to www.speakwithmat.com. That's www.speakwithmat.com. And my online scheduler is right there. You can go right in. You can schedule a 15 or 30-minute phone conversation. And quite frankly, at the end of that first call, we're going to have a good idea. Does it make sense to have a second conversation? So again, very low-key. Go right into the online scheduler. You don't even have to get on the phone with anyone to schedule this. So again, speakwithmat.com, www.speakwithmat.com and schedule it there. So, all right, let's go ahead and get on to today's show. Okay, let's jump into this. The first one I get actually happened in the office a couple weeks ago, and I get this one all the time. I've done other podcasts on this. There's, she actually has a couple questions inside the main question. This was a single person that came in, and we were talking, and as, as we were you know, just talking about different things, some of the things she was really wanting to do, and some of the directions that she was looking to take was, the first one was, I own a large home, about $500,000. It's too much for me. I don't need it all. I'm looking to sell it, downsize. I only owe about hundred grand, And then whatever I have left, go invest it. Oh, and I'd really like to retire. If I didn't already tell you, I'm 57 years old. So there's a couple questions in there. Should I retire? I'm only 57. I'm looking to downsize. In many areas of the country, especially, so just to let everyone know that our main office is in the west side Philadelphia suburbs, Westchester, PA, and I try and explain this to someone. So my question back to her was, well, let me ask you something. You have a home worth a half a million. Have you done any research and started to look on where you would want to go and downsize? Now, just to let you know, she's local to this area where I am right here. And uh, she said, well, no, not really. And I said, well, this is something you really want to start looking at before you just go talk to a realtor and throw your home up for sale. Because literally on the road right behind where our office is, there is a massive new development going in. I don't know how many homes. It's in the hundreds of single-family homes, townhomes, villas. 
And they have an over 55 community, which in our area, PA, is a very high retention state for retirees, meaning that they don't leave PA. There are certain reasons why they hang around, even if they have property in other states. And I said, you want to realize something, that that over 55 community, the townhomes that are there start at $550,000. So not only do you owe 100 on your current home if you sell it, you got to come to the table with more just to buy that one. And we all know what builders do. That's just a stripped-down version. There's nothing extra about that one. So when you're looking to this idea, and we've been hearing about it forever, and it's not just here in PA, but the idea of downsizing. Okay, I'm going to sell my home. You know, maybe I'm an empty nester now. I don't need four or five bedrooms. The kids are gone. I need something smaller. And what I'm constantly telling people, or they're coming back to me after doing the research, where they're wanting to go. So she just wanted to stay local. She's like, well, all of my friends are here. The church I go to here. My doctors are here. My support group is here. So I want to stay in this local area. And I was like, I have to tell you that many times around here, downsizing is not financial downsizing. You might downsize square footage. You might go from a four or five bedroom down to a two-two, but you're not you're not selling for five hundred thousand dollars. Oh, a hundred. Still walk away with four hundred and getting something in this area that you're going to want. In our area, it's just it's not realistic. And in many other areas of the country, it's the same thing. So when you start looking at that, and just to let you know, I have numerous numerous clients that when we first got together years ago. And part of the thought process was, yeah, we're going to look to downsize for almost all of them that have decided to stay in the local area and not move out. Now, I've got clients that have moved down to the Carolinas, to Florida, out west, uh, Arizona, is many times your dollar can go, well, not necessarily Florida, but in some of those areas, your dollar can go a lot further from what you sell here when you go there. But if you're wanting to stay local, I let them know, you want to go do the research. You want to talk to, if you know a realtor that you like and that you trust, go talk to them. Let them start showing you the the properties that are out there for downsizing and what the cost is. And you really, so the idea, first of all, is I want to look to buy a much smaller place, use the extra cash to retire now and invest it. We really want to look at, is that even possible? Is it even doable? So that would be the first thing, or that is the first thing that I usually tell people especially when they haven't done the research. And sometimes I'll just pull it up on the big screen in our office. Let's go to the internet. Let's start pulling up. Let's look what you want. You want to be in this area. This You want this 2-2. And I don't know, you can pick the square footage you want. I want 15, 18, 2,000 square feet. What's it going to be? And many times in our area, it can be even more than the home that they're sitting on. Many of the clients I have, they got homes that are paid for. And they're like, all right, we're going to look to unload this but we want to stay here. And many times they are like, well, we might as well just, because they're going to actually have to take money out of investments. Maybe they don't want to do that. Maybe the only place they have the investments is uh, IRAs. So then in addition to having to walk in and put more money into the new home, the downsized home, by the way, is that they're going to have to pay the tax man because of where the money is. So the first thing I would always tell everyone, one thing you really want to look at and consider is when you look to move, and downsize, or just move in general, is really be aware of any or what that future cost is to where you're going, right? Now, it might be different if I 
the helm is worth a half a million. I owe a hundred grand. I'm, you know, after transfer tax and stuff, I'm, I'm going to look to walk away with three hundred seventy-five thousand, and then I'm only going to look to spend one hundred fifty grand. Well, that that could be a different story, you know. And who knows? I'm not really sure where we are. Where what one hundred fifty grand is going to get you? Not much, but maybe you go somewhere else where the one hundred fifty can that dollar can really be stretched. So. Just really take that into consideration. Now, let's go into the other thing that she talked about. I want to retire. I'm only 57. So you guys have heard me talk about this in the past as well. And that is, that's an open-ended question because there's so much more that we have to look at. What's the first thing I'm, you know, many of you that have heard me talk, what's the first thing you're going to ask for? Well, you're a long way from Medicare eligibility. What's your healthcare going to be like? You know, I, I had someone in my office literally today that um, is a federal employee, and once they retire, you know their healthcare. You know they could retire at fifty-seven if, if that healthcare is taken care of. That's another important thing we really want to look at. And then, you know, have you done a distribution plan? You know, fifty-seven for many people would be considered early retirement. Do I have a strong distribution plan to still meet my income needs? Because we also want to remember. If I'm 57, I'm real healthy. In fact, the the woman that was in today, she does triathlons and she's a little over 57. And, you know, so you still want to be active. You still want to be uh, doing the things that you know physically you can still do on the bucket list. So how much money am I going to be spending during those bucket list years? So a distribution plan is going to be extremely important. And a lot of that's going to be dependent on where the money is tax characterized wise and how much Am I actually putting in my pocket? How much am I going to have to pay Uncle Sam? So again, when we're looking to downsize, we really want to look at, okay, when I sell, where am I going and what's that cost going to be? I had some realtors in the other day, and I have to tell you, when they told me those homes are the townhomes over 55, they're starting at 550, I was, I was very surprised, very surprised. So again, a couple of things that you want to really be looking at before just jumping into the idea, because we know it's been around forever, the idea of downsizing. So the next one is, had someone in my office and they were going over what we call the discovery meeting, kind of just looking at where everything is, all the different assets they might have, different insurances they might have, and um, trying to figure out, hey, listen, you know, are these pieces of the puzzle that uh, we're just going to keep in place? And what happened here was, is we had about $50,000 in an old life insurance policy. And so my question was, well, listen, what was the reason you got this? And the policy was quite old, really old. And the answer was, well, legacy. But I've been paying on it forever. And I said, well, is legacy still really important to you? And she says, well, yeah, you know, as you've pointed out, I've got these assets over here and many of the assets I'm probably not going to need. So maybe that can be the legacy. And I'm still paying a premium on this policy. And we went down a couple other questions. And I came, one of the questions I asked is, well, is there a concern for any type of future care event with regards to the other assets that you have? Now, this person was single and she said, well, yeah, there, there is a concern about that. Now, the reality is we know none of us want to really talk about needing the care, but it is something we should at least address and plan for. And I said, well, let me ask you something. Are you comfortable with continuing to pay that premium into this policy? And she said, no. And where do we stand? How important is legacy to you versus having a care event? She goes, well, having the care event is 
it's more important to me, or at least addressing that and figuring out a way to handle that is more important than the legacy that the life insurance can provide. And as I said, there was about $50,000 of cash value that is there. And so I said, what if we did this? Now, we don't, it's still going to be insurance. So at this point in our life, we're still going to have to prove insurability. But what if we did some research and we saw, is there a way that we can transfer that cash, the cash value in the life insurance policy, and transfer that to another life insurance policy that's newer that might have additional benefits, which could include some type of long-term care rider that essentially is a hybrid life insurance long-term care policy. So we could design it where there's no more premiums. And in the event you needed care, by the way, I I let them or let her know, it's not going to pay for all the care. It's going to help pay for the care that you're going to have, but definitely not all of it. And I said, but if we want to get rid of the premium, we could dump that cash value to this new policy. We're going to have some money for care. But in addition to that, if we get to be lucky and we never need it, we still have intact a life insurance policy that can still be used for legacy. And so we're, we're actually in the process of doing that right now. So the idea, when you look at you know, your overall financial picture and the different policies that we have, and many times I do have people come in and they, they have these old policies, prudential policies. This was a Penn Mutual policy. And they look at all of that and they're not really sure, like, why am I still paying on it? And so is there a way that we can still use that asset that we have to help us with, as life changes, we have different things that we need to address, and that can help us address it. So again, that was something that recently happened here in the office that I think is really important. Diagnose it. Now, I've had other clients, when we looked at it, they were like, oh, no, 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 legacy is extremely important. And so if that's the case, we just keep it in place. Maybe we call the company, we see if, if the premiums are, you know, do we have to make those premiums? Can we reduce them? But so the, the question is, what is it there for? And is that situation still really important? Or can I still have that importance, that legacy taken care of, while also taking care of, in this case, some type of a care event? In this case, we're hoping that we can. You guys have probably heard me talk about that in the past where we've done that with other clients where it's been very beneficial, you know, something that we thought, man, that why am I still paying that old Prue policy? And now there's a way that we can move it over into something new that has additional benefits that, quite frankly, they didn't have back then. So something to consider. Those are the couple things that have happened here in the office recently. Here's a question that I got from uh, Dave in D.C., and this came over the internet, unless my company's entire board of directors gets in trouble for sexual harassment, oh boy, which I guess is possible these days, I really feel confident about our future potential growth. So David, sounds like you work for the company. How much company stock is too much to own inside my 401k? Well, first, Dave, let me speak to that. I'm not a, I'm not a proponent of being a stock picker or a market timer, the investments or the investment strategy that that we utilize here is more of a academically diverse portfolio. But with regards to your question specifically, I can't answer that for compliance reasons to give you an exact amount. But I am going to go some thing, go through some things that I think can help you 
come to your own conclusion, some things that I would recommend looking at. First of all, with regards to the idea of sexual harassment for all the boards, yeah, that's probably, unless there's only a board member of one, is probably not going to happen. But one thing I would, and then the company fall apart, but one thing you might want to consider is, is your company, what happens if there's a merger and you're on the wrong end of the merger or the company is on the wrong end of the merger? Or what if you are acquired? It could be that the company is really positioning itself, the board of directors that you just spoke about. We've really seen this in the banking industry over the course of the last 10, 12 years, is they position themselves to be bought. The idea is the stockholders and the board members, which many times own a big percentage, or the owners themselves who are owning a large percentage of the stock, they're really positioning themselves to be bought. And sometimes that's a good thing. Sometimes it's not a good thing. Maybe we want to get out as soon as that acquisition happens, if we can. The other thing would be is when you're owning the stock inside the 401k, I'm assuming that you are purchasing the stock through your contributions to the 401k, and it's not any type of vested stock options that you are being given. The next thing I would talk or I would ask you about is your question was how much or what percentage of the stock should I be invested in? My question would be is look at a worst case scenario, and that is if the stock plummeted to only 10% of its current value, how much of your portfolio do you want to see fall in that direction? And I think when you can answer that, and then what you can do is you can invest in other things inside the 401k outside of that. That's really the question. How much am I willing to lose in the event one of those scenarios that we just talked about happens and I'm on the wrong side of it? Or there's a, you know, there's a market correction or depending on the industry that you're in there, you know, we can go back and look at the 2000s with the tech bubble. If you're in a tech type of thing and it's one of those companies, you know, like Uber that still hasn't made a dime, yet the stock price has skyrocketed. You know, they still haven't shown a profit. I don't think they're projecting a profit for years. You know, if all of a sudden that just kind of disappears, that's something else you would want to look at. But the real question that I would have you ask, how much company stock is too much to own inside my 401k? My question would be, worst case scenario, how much would you want to lose subject to that stock decline. And hopefully that will that will help you answer that question. So here's another one. This is one that came from Cliff in Florida. I told myself that once I hit a million dollars in my investment portfolio that I'd move a lot of the money to cash. But now that I'm at a million, I'm thinking I can get to 1.2 million before I need to make that move. What do you think? Well, sounds to me like we're just thinking this gravy train is going to keep on going right? One of the things that I would tell you, or I would ask you, I'm assuming, because this is usually the case, that the money that you are talking about is something that you're continuing to contribute into. So then what we want to look at is, is it in a traditional 401k? Is it in a brokerage account? Or is it a Roth account? Or do we have a combination of all? And then I would really ask, okay, all of a sudden now 1.2 million is that is, and then we're going to move a lot of money to cash. My question, Cliff, would be, why are we looking to move a lot of money to cash? What's going to be the significant event or the reasoning to move to cash? Is it for, uh, we're getting close to retirement. If we got a million dollars, what's your idea of a significant part of the portfolio 
to cash. Because, you know, the reality is, even if we're coming close to retirement, it is a situation where we always recommend, yes, we start pulling risk off the table. If I've been investing, you know, 75, 85% of my overall portfolio is in stocks. Yeah, I agree. We want to start taking some of that off the table, but that doesn't mean we go all, in my opinion, we don't go all the way to cash. Maybe we take some of the bucket and we go more to a 50-50, more of a balance blend. Maybe we do take some money and we put it into uh, short-term bond instruments, maybe a portfolio that is 100% in intermediate and short-term bonds. And then, yes, we can have some money in cash, but we still need money, in my opinion, for long-term growth, even if you're three, four, five years away from the traditional retirement age, let's say of 65. So really look at those different things, Cliff, to decide is it a good idea or not? What's your real thinking behind all of a sudden I want to get to a million to a million too? I would say that's not the real question that I would be asking you. That's not the thing that we need to answer now is we wanted to get to a million and then you were going to move to cash. What was the reasoning behind that? Had you already done some equations? And yeah, once I get there, then I can move up my retirement date. Well, that could be a reason that we want to take some money off. And all of a sudden now, maybe we're, we were worried about a buyout or early buyout retirement opportunity at work, and now that's gone. So now maybe we're being forced into that 1.2. That means we really need to plan. They could come back and maybe I just get let go. So depending on where you are, Cliff, where you are in your, where, where your life is, what you're looking to do, what was the real reasoning behind going to cash once you got to a million dollars? Then that, I think, will help you is it a good idea looking to get to 1.2? And again, when you look to diversify your assets and different buckets of money, and this is my opinion, based on the different risk buckets we have, then I would tell you to keep going. If I've got money in cash, I've got money in more protected or very, very conservative bucket, then I've got money in a balanced account, then I got my money in my long-term growth, is I'm looking at the household value getting to 1.2 and moving a lot of money to cash. In my opinion, do we need money in cash? Yes. Is there a reason to put a big portion of our portfolio in cash? I don't believe so because of we got inflation. You know, what's our income need going to be? We're going to need some. Now it is, we are having money at risk. Even in a balanced portfolio, we have money at risk, but we're looking for that growth opportunity long-term to help sustain the income needs that we're going to have in the future. So those are the things, Cliff, I would tell you, those are the things I would be asking you to more um, get more information to help you answer that question. So well, listen, everyone, that's all I've got for today. I hope this has been helpful. Again, just things that are happening with either questions that are coming over the internet or different scenarios, situations that are happening right here in our office. And I really hope that you guys are finding this valuable, the different ways to look at how these situations and questions, even that you might be encountering as to different ways to look at it to help make the most educated decision to move forward. So listen, everyone, if you have a question or scenario, or you would simply like to have a conversation with me, you can schedule a 15 or 30-minute conference call to go over your situation individually. You can get that at speakwithmat.com. All you have to do is go there. My calendar is right there. You don't even have to talk to anyone. You'll see the schedule, put it in there. I'll be more than happy to talk to you. If you would like your question or scenario reviewed on the podcast on Smart Money Questions. All you got to do is send that to info at smartmoneyquestions.com or 
Go to smartmoneyquestions.com, put it in there, and we will get it and look to feature it on an upcoming show. So listen, everyone, I hope this has been helpful. We will talk to you soon. Everybody, take care. 